ABC this morning. If you're uh, into fault, you're in the right place this morning, apparently. Uh, but if you're not, you're even in a better place. We're glad that you're here. We're hoping that the Lord bless you. Uh, we are um, going to take some time to share with you two things this morning uh, that hopefully will be a blessing to you, especially if you are not part of the local congregation, but you're somewhere else. Uh, this will be pertinent for you, this first announcement. Uh, we're glad that you're with us and just pray that you're blessed uh, and believe that God's got some great things for you through the word today. The announcement we want to let everybody know about, even if you're not here locally, is that we have started uh, a worship ministry called Tribes and Tongues Collective. It is a uh, worship ministry dedicated to writing and recording and disseminating uh, new messianic worship. And uh, we've released our first single. It was inspired by a trip to Zambia. So it's written in a traditional African style. And uh, we want to use that to raise money for Zambia Messianic Fellowship, which you can find at www.zamf.org. And that ministry right now uh, is in great need because the uh, COVID-19 crisis economically all around the world has literally sent them into a tailspin as a country. Uh, they're starving over there. And we want to use this first single as a way to raise money for Zambia Messianic Fellowship. The way it works is this. You can click on the link down below in the notes, and there's a page it will take you to to show you the song. You can download that song for any donation. So you can have a copy of the song for any donation. If it's a dollar, uh, if it's $5, if it's $10, whatever it might be. Our goal is to raise $5,000 for Zambia Messianic Fellowship. So I just want you to pray about giving to that and encouraging uh, Pastor Alex and Zambia Messianic Fellowship through your giving. Now, the other thing that you need to know about is we are uh, in a season where we are instructed by the Lord to anticipate uh, his presence in a special way for 50 days. Uh, we're instructed in the Bible to count those 50 days, and we're on day number 42. And as a result, we're almost through the season. And next weekend, Sunday, May 31st, we're going to be meeting for a celebration called Pentecost. Uh, it's a celebration that encourages us to think about the presence of the Lord and the power of the Lord working in our life. And as a result, we want you to join us next Sunday, May 31st at five o'clock at Kleiner Park in Meridian for our annual Pentecost celebration. Uh, we're going to be practicing social distancing. Uh, we're going to uh, practice just being safe with each other in, in any other way that's appropriate to our current crisis, but we are going to meet. We're going to be outside. Uh, we're getting a very, very loud sound system. So we should be able to project through a lot of the park. And hopefully people from around uh, the park will come join us. Great opportunity for you to invite your friends and your family. want to let you know as well that if you go to your life group or home fellowship this week, you will have some invites that you can pass out to your friends and family so they have information about what it is, where it is, when it is. Also want to let you know that day is going to be a day when we have a picnic together. So bring your own picnic. It's a B-Y-O-P. Bring your own picnic. And um, we're going to eat together immediately after the service is over. Okay. We're going to jump into the word this morning. So turn to Isaiah chapter 42, please. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. 
We have been talking about this season, and if we're, uh, if we're really um, aware of the way life works, there are seasons of life uh, as a human that we know teach us different things. Different seasons of life invite us into different expressions and experiences. And so we need to recognize that with God as our maker, putting on this earth for about 70 or 80 years, if we're fortunate, there are seasons that we walk through individually as humans, as men, as women, as families, and as churches. And God has a cycle of seasons in his word that he wants to highlight particular uh, revelations of his redemptive power. Those seasons right now are focused on God anticipating or God instructing us to anticipate his spirit or his presence and his power working into our lives in new ways. We count 50 days because we're believing God's going to do something new through his presence and his power. And so we're literally 42 days into that, as I mentioned a moment ago. And we want to cooperate with this season. And the way we cooperate with this season is by understanding what it is that God wants to do with our lives in this season, how he wants to grow us and mature us, how he wants to bless us and encourage us. And so this season, we've been looking at the themes associated with uh, God's presence and his power. And so the first week we looked at the purposes of uh, the presence of God. Second week, we looked at the purpose of God. Last week, uh, we looked at the power of God. And this week, we're looking at the priority. What is the priority of this season? In other words, as we're praying, what priority does God want to get into us as we're walking through this season? Now, we're going to talk about that by starting from the beginning of the word and working through a few passages, looking at the life of Jesus and ultimately looking at the way that this works itself out into our life in our generation. So we're going to go all the way back. We're going to go to the back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one, God creates humanity, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're awesome. Everything's perfect. Uh, nothing like it is today. Adam and Eve were there to embody and expand God's life in the world. Adam and Eve uh, are the perfect, if you will, manifestation of the beauty of what it meant to be human in the presence of God. And God told them if they trusted him, they would continue to have life eternal and life abundant. Well, the problem was the devil comes along, starts whispering stupid things in Eve's ear. Like all of us, she listens and Adam and Eve decide to trust in other sources for life. And they eat what in the scriptures called for the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it represents Adam and Eve trusting their own way into life rather than trusting God, trusting their own source and wisdom instead of God's. And so the result of that in Genesis three, you can see this in Genesis three, verses 21 through the end of the chapter 24, God says to Adam and Eve, you have to leave my presence, not because he hates them, but because he wants to restore them. They need to leave the presence of God so they don't live forever in a ruined state. And so God has them go out of his presence 
for the express purpose of restoring them. So from the beginning, the, the whole problem at the beginning of the story of the Bible is that Adam and Eve and us as humans were created for God's presence, but we've had to leave his presence. How do we get back? That's the whole story of the Bible. How do we get back to God's unveiled, unhindered, beautiful presence? And what we realize with Adam and Eve is this from the, from the very beginning, just before God invites them out of the garden, he gives them this interesting gift. And essentially what he does is that he shows us how he's going to restore everyone to his presence. It says that God killed two animals and clothed Adam and Eve in animal skin before uh, they sinned. Adam and Eve were walking around nude. Uh, it's weird for us, but it wasn't for them. And as a result of the shame and sin that they lived in, God clothed them with animal skin. So from the very beginning, we get this message that restoration of God's presence is going to come through what's called a substitution, literally someone who takes the place of another. And in this case, the animals took the place of Adam and Eve and they represented or symbolized Adam and Eve's death that they deserved, that the animals took. In other words, Adam and Eve, because they ran away from God, they, they heaped death upon themselves, and the animals were the ones that died in their place. It was the substitute. And so from the very beginning, what we see is this. God created humans for his presence. Humans ran away from his presence, and God wants to restore them to his presence, and he does so through the symbol of a substitute. Now, we can all appreciate the beauty of this idea of a substitute. Uh, we're, we're all like the idea of somebody substituting, uh, standing in our place when we do something that we ought not to do. And they come along and they uh, actually take our punishment for us. Perfect example in modern times. Uh, really, in the midst of coronavirus, was a few weeks ago, a hairdresser was put in jail for seven days and fined $500 a day because she opened up her salon in the midst of coronavirus. Well, the uh, lieutenant governor or assistant attorney general, somebody in Texas that was an uppity up government official, told the judge he would take the place of this hairdresser's uh, stint in jail so that she didn't have to do that because she was trying to feed her kids. Substitution. When someone, we hear that, we think, oh, that's great. Uh, when we're thinking about substitution right now, we've got people who are working in the medical community, in the first responders community, like firemen, who are out there doing work for us so that we don't have to do that. Uh, people working in stores to keep food on the shelves. Uh, people who are trucking, a, a variety of industries that we would call essential, working in a sense, in our place for us so that we don't run out of food or uh, end up without essential medical services. This principle of substitution is very attractive to us as humans. And some of the greatest stories in the history of the world and some of the greatest movies we ever watched are based on this principle of substitution. Substitution is the way that someone who is confined to death escapes that and ultimately gets out. And that's why hero stories are so attractive to us because a hero really becomes a substitute for others that need someone to intervene. That's the story of the Bible from the beginning. 
Humans ruined their lives. They separated themselves from God's presence. And a substitute was the way back in to God's presence. And what happens from here forward is a narrative all through the Bible, all through history of humans rejecting God and realizing that they need a substitute somehow to intervene and bring them back into the presence of God. In fact, if we could summarize the story of humanity, it's this cycle of God wanting to bless humans running away. And then there being examples of substitutes that bring us back to the place where we realize we are unable to rescue ourselves and God alone can send the substitute that we need. That's one way to think about history. And so as we consider this, what we want to look at is how does this reality of God trying to restore us through his presence through a substitute begin to unfold in the scripture. So what we do is we come now uh, from Genesis 3 moving forward, and there are three cycles where God blesses humanity and humanity runs away from them. One of this well-known is the story of Noah and the flood. Another one that's lesser known is a story of humanity trying to build a tower to reach to the heavens, and rather than doing the will of God, God actually scatters them and gives them different languages, which is where uh, races and cultures come from. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God uh, reveals himself to a man named Abraham. And he says here, Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to make a great nation of you. And I want to give you the land of Israel. And so here God is communicating to Abraham and through him to all of humanity that his intention is still to bless humanity. When we use the word bless, we're talking about giving life and then giving us the authority to multiply that life. And so it's having life and multiplying life is what it means to be blessed. And God says to Abraham, I want to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. And I'm going to use your family to bring that blessing to the entire world. And so from the beginning, we see God is relentlessly determining to bless humanity to give them life, to help them multiply life, to restore life, and the word to capture that is blessing. But in order to do that, he needs to restore them from a broken and ruined condition. And so what we see with Abraham is that God says, this is the center point of how I'm going to bless all of the nations of the earth. Out of that, He says that Abraham's family would then become a great nation, which we know was the nation of Israel. And Israel was the nation who would bring about life and justice and righteousness all through the world. They would be the agency that God would use to restore blessing to the whole world. Here's the problem. Adam and Eve failed. Uh, We know that in the days of Noah, humanity failed. In the days of Abraham, even Abraham failed. Though Abraham trusted God, he failed over and over again. And then when God called Israel to be the light to the nations, to literally bring blessing to the nations, they failed over and over and over again. And they failed not only to be a people who manifested God's life, but they failed because they had kings who led them into ways of death and unfaithfulness, ways that right now, 
are uh, uh, strangely parallel to the things that our culture does to run away from God. And in the midst of this failure, we come to Isaiah chapter 42, and we're going to begin to grasp how God is going to resolve this dilemma of wanting to bless everyone and restore them to his presence. And at the same time, humanity keeps failing and they're unable to be faithful to God. In Isaiah chapter 42, he speaks of this family of Israel that's supposed to restore everything. And he says this, here, they're referred to as the servant of God. They're going to serve the nations by doing God's will. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Very poetic language. Let me just break down a couple things for you. God is looking at his people as his servant, and he says, I'm going to put my spirit on you, literally my presence and my power, so that you can bring justice to the nations. And that was a way of saying God was going to right all the wrongs so the nations of the world would be set right and restored to his presence and his blessing. But it's interesting because it goes on to say, and it's used in the first person of an individual male. So while it's talking about all of Israel, it's also framing it in the, uh, as a individual male that's doing this. He look at verse 2, he says, He's not going to cry aloud, lift up his voice, make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench until justice comes forth. So there's this work, but it's the work done by someone who's using gentleness to bring justice into the world. If you will, he's not going to crush the enemy in the sense that he's going to exact a kind of, of um, bitterness and wrath that is rooted in hatred, but rather he's going to establish justice in the world by bringing peace and gentleness into the world that would ultimately cause the nations to be blessed. And it's an interesting passage in the midst of the Bible because what we have here is God saying, I want to bless humanity with life, the ability to multiply life, humanity running away from that. And then we have this picture of a substitute that's the only way for this to happen. And so as the story unfolds and God's people are regularly unfaithful, they continue to fail. God gives this prophetic word and he says, this is going to happen. Somehow, God tells us, I'm going to establish justice in the world. The world will be set right. But you need to understand that this agency, Israel, Though they were commissioned to do it and they did not do it, this passage is put into the first person because what we're beginning to understand is there's going to be a substitute, an individual male who substitute not only for all the nations and their rebellion, but also for Israel and her failure. And he would be the one to accomplish the things God intended. Skip to Isaiah chapter 49 to catch this. I want you to notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 49. And it goes on and develops how God is going to restore all of the nations to his presence. And this servant now moves from the Israel as a nation as a whole, and it moves in specifically to an individual. And it says in chapter 49, verse 6, 
Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? It's referring to the people of Israel. It's in another way of referring to them, the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. It says, I will make you a light to the nations and my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so here God is saying, that this servant, this individual male, is going to bring salvation to all the nations. They're going to be rescued from the curse of death. And the one who would do it, ultimately, if you skip up to Isaiah chapter 53, so we can walk through this uh, in this short book here in Isaiah, uh, short passage of Isaiah, it says that this servant who would ultimately bring salvation to the nations, look what it says. Verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 53, were despised, he was despised and rejected by men, a, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the first thing we know about this servant, that he's a male, that he's a singular, that he's representing Israel, but he's doing what Israel and all other humanity could not do. He's manifesting the gentle, restoring power of God in the earth to reconcile the nations to God. And then here, though, it says that he's despised and rejected, that he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Look how it goes on and speaks about him in verse 4. It says that he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the substitute. The substitute, God says, is going to restore the world and reconcile it to God's presence and bring the blessing God wanted. The problem is humanity keeps running away. Even God's anointed people, Israel, kept running away. Even the kings all throughout their history kept running away. But this one who comes, this male, would be a servant who would bring justice into the world. He would bring salvation to all of the nations. How's he going to do it? He's a substitute. He himself would be punished, wounded, smitten, destroyed, ultimately die so that others did not have to. In other words, this one who carries the weights of condemnation and, and the judgment on death, one would carry that to remedy the problem that we have, which is we're caught in the throes of death, under the bondage of death, and God says to this one, I'm going to let you suffer on behalf of everyone else so that they can be rescued from it. The salvation that would come to the world or the rescue that would come to the world would come by one who gave himself as a substitute for everyone else. And like Adam and Eve, we can be clothed with animal skins that cover over our brokenness and ultimately we can be saved from death. This one... Who is it? Matthew chapter 12. I want to jump there so we can see this because from Matthew, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 42, Matthew, who lived at the time of Jesus and was a follower of Jesus, wrote about this passage in Isaiah chapter 42. And what he does is he uh, applies it to Jesus. In other words, Ma uh, Isaiah the prophet is saying, 
God's going to restore the world through justice. He's going to do it through gentleness. And out of that, that one who would be the restoring agency who gives up his life, Matthew looks at that and says, this is Jesus, the one who lived in the first century. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 12 is uh, confronting the religious powers of the day. They are enslaving people through religious rigor and unreasonable demands. And Jesus comes to upend not only the sin of people who are in rebellion, but the sin of people who are dominated by religion. And in this passage, he's confronting people who are religious. And um, they uh, were so angry at him. Look at what it says in chapter 12, verse 14. They were so angry with him and they were called the Pharisees. They went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So these people who are religious who believed it was their job uh, to somehow bring religion to others who were Jewish, they're so angry and so filled with evil, they want to literally murder Jesus for what? Because he healed a man's hand who was withered and he did a miracle and the hand stretched out. That's how their religion was so pervasive and poisonous. They could not understand that Jesus was bringing life And so out of this, look what Jesus does in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, that they want to murder him, withdrew from that place. And many people followed him and he healed them. So let's pause right here. Remember, it says that he's not going to use violence as a way to accomplish God's purpose. What does Jesus do? In the face of violence, Jesus immediately goes away and heals people who need to be healed. But it goes on. And in order, and he ordered those he healed not to make him known. Uh, And there's reasons for that beyond the scope of this conversation. But essentially what Jesus was telling them is, I've healed you, but I don't want you to go tell people who I am. And then it says in verse 17, Jesus healing people in the face of murderous intentions by the religious leaders fulfilled the prophetic words from Isaiah 42, where we just read. And he says, Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That word Gentiles is another Bible word for nations. Here is a quote from Isaiah 42 applied to Jesus. So here's what happens. Jesus comes along. God says, I am pleased with you. I'm putting my presence and my power inside of you. And Jesus would bring justice to all the nations. Literally, they would be restored, set right. Then what happens? Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench till he brings justice to victory. And essentially what Matthew is quoting from Isaiah to say, Jesus in the face of people who have murderous intent is actually bringing healing into the world and rather than putting out even, uh, he won't even, uh, it says break a bruised reed or that he would uh, put out a wick. Think of a candle that's barely, barely burning. He won't even, his gentleness will be so great. It won't even destroy this little sputtering wick. Jesus gentleness brings healing into the world. And so Matthew tells us Jesus fulfills this promise from Isaiah. So as we summarize very briefly, we go all the way back to Adam and Eve. 
They run away from God, and God says, you need a substitute to save you. But God, and this man named Abraham, who came a couple thousand years later, says, I'm going to bless the world, but Abraham and his family are going to be the agency, but they're unfaithful. And in Isaiah 42, we're talking about Israel once again, and Abraham's family, and even they're unfaithful. But God has this one servant, this individual male, who would embody the presence and power of God, called the Spirit. And out of that, he would bring salvation to all the nations of the world. And as he's bringing salvation to all the nations of the world, how does he do it? He gives up his life as a substitute to restore everyone. Matthew comes along and says, here he is. Here's that individual male who would suffer and die on behalf of everyone else. Here's the individual male who would use love and grace, not violence, to bring healing into the world. And healing in the scripture is always representative of restoration to God. And so Jesus is actually restoring people to God through gentleness and through healing rather than responding and reacting to the violence and murder heaped up against him. And so Jesus becomes literally the one who embodies the restoring presence of God on the earth. And we know that Jesus then later in his life was crucified by those religious authorities and that he went into the grave and that he rose from the grave and out of rising from the grave, he literally entered death and broke its power because he was perfect and it couldn't hold him. And so Jesus rises from the grave and just as death has captured every human, Jesus says, death has not captured me. I've destroyed the power of death by fully entering into it. And now I've broken it by coming up into resurrection. And so Jesus was the substitute that we all needed and his resurrection broke the power of death. So we can be restored to life with God. And now here's the beauty of where this goes for us. After Jesus is resurrected, he's talking to his followers in the first century. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 1, and I want you to catch the significance of what's going on in the passage. Remember that it says that the Spirit was put on Jesus so that he would use love and gentleness and healing to restore the world, not violence. In Acts chapter 1, it says, as Jesus is getting ready to go return to heaven, and the disciples are standing with him, he instructs them, Wait in Jerusalem to do what? For the promise of the Father, which he, which uh, you've heard that John, which is another character, was uh, instructed people to be baptized in water. It says, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here's the promise. The same Spirit that rested on Jesus that gave him the ability to overcome evil with good, to overcome death with life, to overcome hate with love, to overcome injustice with gentleness. That same spirit is now promised to the followers of Jesus. And here it is. Those who follow him replicate the very work that he did in the world. In other words, the reconciling, restoring work of Jesus is now imparted to his people, those who follow him. And so here we have where Adam failed and Abraham failed and all the kings of Israel failed and even Israel as a nation failed. Jesus comes and he does not fail. He manifests the restoring power of God 
and then he imparts it to his followers so they will not fail in their task. He gives that to them. And so from here forward, what we see is this. The Father sends the Spirit to all who trust in him and follow Jesus. And where Israel failed, the people of God, because they have God's presence and power dwelling in them, will not fail in their task. The outpouring of the Spirit is the promise that God will enable us to do the very thing that he called us to do. Which means this. We are the people who live the priority of restoration in the world by the power of the Spirit. Let me say it again. We're the people who live in the priority of restoration through the Spirit's power. We are those who are to prioritize the reconciling, restoring power of God through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our life in the same way that Jesus carried the healing presence of God we are to carry the healing presence of God. We are those who are given life by Jesus to do what he did. And so here's what happens. I want you to notice what it is that the scripture, how the scripture defines this priority. We are now people of the spirit. We have been baptized by the presence and power of God. We are now re, our priorities are now being recrafted and reformed to do what Jesus did. And in Acts chapter 4, notice what they're called in Acts chapter 4. And just as Jesus stood before religious authorities and he was persecuted, just as that persecution cost him his life, now his followers in the first century, just a few short months after he himself is persecuted and dies. It says this in Acts chapter 4. I'm reading, I got the wrong, I got the wrong reference. This is what it says somewhere in Acts chapter 4. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Here's what happens when the spirit came on them. Power was accomplishing miracles. So the people of God were raising people from the dead and healing people who were crippled and opening blind eyes. They were doing that power. And what were they doing? They were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we call a witness. Jesus' people became witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. They themselves not only saw the resurrection, but more importantly, they encountered the power of the resurrection. So death was no longer a stranglehold in their life, and they could be a conduit of the renewing life that Jesus himself brought into the world. That's what the scriptures calls a witness. And so as we look at this pattern through the scriptures all the way back to Adam, what we have is this. Jesus is called his people to bring healing and restoration to the world. How do we do that? By the power of the Spirit. What does that look like day in and day out? It means we are witnesses of the resurrection. That means we have experienced the resurrection and we can deliver the resurrection to other people. The resurrection brought an end to death and sin. Jesus coming up from the grave destroyed that power. Now when the same spirit that was on him is on us, 
we are ones who taste the resurrection and can offer it to other people. We become witnesses going into the world to say, this is what the resurrection looks like. And I want to share with you the same life that I have encountered. And so we are those who can testify through our word and our works that the resurrection of Jesus is true. This happens in two ways. Briefly, I want to summarize for you. Number one, it happens. You can read about this in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. The resurrection changes our nature and our character. It fundamentally changes the kind of people that we are. I don't know about you, but when I look across the world, we see a people who are broken and dying and lost. But we see some people who talk about success. They talk about um, having a life that thrives. But the reality is, just like Adam and Eve were unable to attain life on their own, every single one of us is unable to attain life on our own. I don't care how many planners you use, how many self-improvement seminars you go to, it doesn't matter how much counseling you get from a therapist or how many self-help books you read, all of us know there's something wrong with us and our ability to bring restoration in the world is simply impinged by our own humanity. Jesus remedies that through his resurrection. And what he does is that he puts his spirit on us so that we taste the resurrection and we have a new identity and a new nature. This is what it looks like. It says this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Those attributes of God, love, where we give good instead of hate in the face of injustice and rejection and accusation, where we live in joy despite our loss and difficult circumstances, where we walk in peace despite temptations to worry and fret and anxiety, where we're patient even though others don't change quick enough for us, where we are kind though others deserve justice and retribution, where we're good despite the fact that there's misery and wickedness in the world, where we keep our word and are faithful even though others refuse to do so, where we're meek even though we would want to use power for our own benefit, or where we have self-control, even though the world invites us to try to exercise control over others, those are the attributes that start working into ourselves, and we literally manifest the very nature of Jesus, which is why Matthew 12 becomes so important. In the face of murderous intent and ultimately murderous actions, Jesus dies as a substitute. He gives his life away through gentleness, we ourselves are to manifest that same spirit of love. Jesus, it says, was a man of sorrow, but Jesus was a man of great joy, a man of perfect peace. He goes to the cross, and as people are crucifying him, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's a man who trusts himself to the Father. The last moment before he dies, he says, Father, I commit my spirit into your hand. Jesus himself had this unrelenting forgiveness and love that brought life into the world. He invites us to live in that same way by the power of the Spirit. We witness the resurrection of Jesus by a changed nature. We're no longer bitter, angry, frustrated, anxious, always fretting. We're no longer greedy and ambitious, 
filled with longings that we think need to be met by other people and other things. We are no longer that kind of person. We become a fundamentally different kind of person who literally is growing into the image of Jesus to manifest the very same love he displayed when he died on the cross. He was a substitute. So the first thing we realize is that substitute who gave his life for me, I now trust him so that I can become like him. But we have a second way. Well, before we go into there, I just want to mention this. As a witness then of the nature and the love of God, we not only become that kind of person, but then we're invited to step into the places where those traits are absent. Where most of us try to stay away from the places where bitterness is present, where, uh, where uh, vengeance is present, while we try to stay away from the places where there's conflict and compromise, while we try to, uh, our, our culture says, live and let live. No, what people do who carry the nature of Jesus is just like Jesus left heaven and came into the world to show the beauty of who God is and to restore the world. We step into those very same places. Jesus didn't have to step into the world. The world was corrupted. He could have just wiped it away and started over, but he didn't. He loved people who rejected him entered into the world to rescue them. And we are then to carry that same spirit as witnesses who said, I've tasted the resurrection. Now I can go into the world, the places that are dark and black and miserable, and I can bring the same love that Jesus himself brought. Which brings us then to not only the fact that we need the, the spirit work in our lives to bring the character of Jesus, but we need it to bring the works of Jesus. We become the kind of person who, who receives divine enablement, to do miracles that otherwise couldn't be done. We are those who are not only, who not only carry the presence of God, but we actually carry the works of God in us. And the scripture defines us in multiple ways. Um, and in particular, it talks about that enablement being gifts of the spirit. So we become witnesses who not only taste the resurrection, but we become witnesses who are gifted to work the resurrection into the world. God gives us things we didn't have before, and he reclaims things that we had before we knew him and followed him so that we can bring life into the dark places of the world. We not only need to have the character of God so that we don't react with, uh, to violence with hate, but we need to have the abilities of God to do it, which means some of us have the gifts of teaching or the gifts of encouragement or, or uh, gifts to bring the message of Jesus to others in unique ways, gifts of leadership, gifts of mercy, gifts of giving, gifts of help or healing, gifts where we get prophetic words and uh, we can discern evil spirits. God not only says you're going to carry my nature, but you're going to carry my gifts so that the work I've called you to, you are actually empowered to do it. And we together can do that as the people of God. And so this is what I want to say to you. God is inviting you to be a witness today. He's inviting you by the power of his spirit to receive his spirit, to witness of his resurrection. All of us are aware that the world needs healing. God not only wants to heal you, but to then send you as a healer. God not only wants to bring restoration to you, he wants to bring restoration through you. And so today you can invite the Holy Spirit into your life in a fresh and real way. So your priority to be a witness shifts. 
when God invites us into this life of being a witness and it comes, it's going to reshuffle and reorganize our priority. If you don't know and follow Jesus, I want you to understand that the first step is to say, Jesus, I need a new priority and it needs to be you. And I'm inviting you today to receive the gift of his salvation, the promise that you will be healed and saved from the power of death. And you can receive that today simply by saying, Jesus, I want to follow you for the rest of my days. I want my priority to be you. But I also want you to know if you're already a follower of Jesus, your priority doesn't have to stay where it's at. It can be reoriented and reformed so that your priority is to be a witness. And that's what happens when the gift of the spirit is renewed in our life. We, we have our hearts reoriented and reconstructed so that Jesus is our priority. So I'm going to pray today. I'm going to invite you not only to say yes to following Jesus, but yes to the priority of the spirit in your life. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking you to convict those today who don't follow you. They need to follow you that your spirit is given so they can witness your resurrection in the restoration of their own heart and life. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you today through this would actually call men and women, boys and girls, young and old, to follow you. Father, I pray the Holy Spirit is delivered right now in the name of Jesus to people that it would cover them with the conviction their priorities can be new. They can be witnesses of your resurrection. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. May God bless you today, and may you go today in the power of the Spirit as witnesses of the resurrection.